When the Buddha talked about suffering, in the Pali words, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, it was not only the suffering that is very overt and uh, like anguish. He was also referring to a daily kind of suffering that I would imagine every one of us can relate to, whereby we get habituated and we miss out. We just plain get lost. And for some of us it happens 99% of the moments of the day and others 72%. But either way, there's a sense of, of kind of uh, grief or sadness that we know that we're not here for all our life. That we're not here at important moments with others. That we, go, we, we know the rituals pretty well, so we seem to be there. But there's often not that quality of really resting wakefully in the moment, really listening, are really speaking from a deep place. Now this kind of dukkha can be somewhat invisible because we're habituated and because we have these projects that we're into, these projects of accomplishing and making money and doing things on time and feeling good about ourselves. we forget what really matters. And then something happens and we feel that kind of um, ache, our squeeze that, ah, I've forgotten. And we come back sometimes. But for much of the day, there can often be this sense of getting through the day. And as that happens day after day, it builds up a deep kind of despair. It's been called a quiet despair. And this is what the Buddha was talking about, dukkha. There's all types of dukkha. There's suffering and freedom from suffering. The Buddha's uh, pathway to freedom, paying attention. That we're learning to pay attention. And every spiritual path, in some way, is giving instructions on how to pay attention, how to notice what's happening, how to reconnect. There's a Tibetan word, bodhicitta, the awakened heart-mind. And what's really wonderful about bodhicitta is that this awakened heart-mind isn't something that's down the road or out there that we have to strive or work really hard for. Rather, bodhicitta is the essence of who we are. The metaphor that most serves me on this is one of sensing that when we are forgetting, we congeal like ice. We get caught in these kind of fixed static ideas and our life's kind of chunky. And in the remembering and coming back, everything gets fluid. There's sounds and sensations and a tenderness in the heart, and it's all very fluid. That ice melts to water. And this melting happens when we pay attention. The awareness has this quality of brightness and warmth that starts to dissolve the holdings. 
And what we dissolve back to is bodhicitta. We're not going anywhere. Now this, mostly everybody would probably go, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. You know, our nature is such and such and we're waking up to realize what's already there. And yet, it is incredibly radical because most of the moments of our day we have an idea of who we are and that idea is not that we're awakening Buddhas. How many go through the day with a fairly consistent sense of, ah, yes, Buddha nature awakening? (laughs) Raise your hand. (laughs) It's one of those things like impermanence that we know about, but our habit is so strong We have such strong conditioning to think of ourselves and our lives in a certain way, that we're a mother or a father or we're doing this job and that people are expecting this and we have this responsibility that our world is pretty small. It's made small by what we're afraid of. We think that there's threatening things about this world, people that aren't going to like us and things we're going to fail in. It's made small by thinking that something's missing and we have to do something to fill the gap. That something about right now is not enough. Now this is biological wiring. We go around with this bodily sense that there is something around the corner that's dangerous and that how it is right now is not okay. Not that it's awful, but not quite okay. It's interesting to track and sense how many moments there's really a fullness of nothing's missing. If you check right now, is anything missing? Just check, take, take the time. Feel into the life of the moment. Is this moment enough? When we check, sometimes we'll find an anguish that something's incredibly scary and wrong, and sometimes a subtle leaning into the next moment because there's this just habit of what's next, need something more, need to do something about what's here. And sometimes we rest in the moment. So the Buddha gave these teachings on how to pay attention in such a way that we'd start resting in more and more moments. How to pay attention to the way we leave the moment Because in a moment of being aware of what's going on, we become awareness. We open back into our nature. So meditation is paying attention. And as the Buddha described it, as we practice, there are a handful of qualities that arise in us that express increasing wakefulness. And he called these qualities the five spiritual qualities. Spiritual not as in other than who we are, but spiritual as in reflecting a deeper, more whole version of who we are. 
the five spiritual faculties. And what I'd like to do for the rest of this talk is walk through them with you and invite you to kind of experientially check in on them, sense them for yourself, because each of these faculties is within us, it's our capacity, and it's part of what's being cultivated day by day. The first that the Buddha described is the faculty of faith. Now, a question is, what is it that we're having faith in? What is it that you can really have faith in? If we're honest, we start having to drop the things we wish we could have faith in. We can't have faith that there's not going to be pain around the corner. We can't have faith that we're not going to get sick or that someone we know that's sick isn't going to die or that we're not going to die. We can't have faith that the people we love are going to be happy. So what can we have faith in? As the Buddha describes faith, it's not in a thing, and it's not in life happening a certain way. Rather, it's faith in what is actually real and happening, that we perceive and rest in. We entrust ourselves to just how it actually is. If we try to have faith in some idea that it's going to be all right, that is coming from the intention to feel more secure. I love the way Joseph Campbell puts it. He says that religion can serve as an inoculation against the mystery. You understand? So our faith isn't in some belief that it's going to be okay according to any of the standards of not unpleasant, our immortality, or anything like that. Our challenge is that we are insecure, so we very easily get caught in trying to have faith in things that will make us feel better. So faith is a, a dicey game because there's ways of of getting attached to what we call faith that are actually securing us but not allowing us to feel what's real. A little story. A well-known scientist, and some think it was Bertrand Russell, once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the sun and how the sun in turn orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is this tortoise standing on? You're very clever, young man, very clever, said the old lady but it's turtles all the way down. (laughs) So there's a way to construct our realities to make us feel good, 
And then there's a radical kind of faith. Now the Lakota Indians have no word for hope. And when asked how come, I was told that in the Lakota cosmology or sense of the universe, there's a trust that just how life is is exactly perfect. Not necessarily pleasant, but perfect. So there's no hope that it's supposed to be different. So trust is this confidence in how life is. There's a quality of saying it's okay. Really, it's okay to pain and to pleasure and to living and to dying. And there's also a sense of the reality of the awareness that's holding all of that. Now in a conference, uh, an international conference with Western teachers and Asian teachers, the Dalai Lama was asked what it is that's most important for Western students to learn. And his response, which I've mentioned here many times, has been a real beacon for me. So just to reflect on this for a moment, the Dalai Lama said that our, our path is to learn to trust the power of our heart and our awareness to awaken through all circumstances. To trust that our hearts, our awareness, have the capacity to awaken, to grow, to blossom through all circumstances, including death, including loss, including fear. This is what we can trust. We can't trust a certain thing's going to happen or not happen but we can trust the nature of heart and mind to awaken. We can trust who we are, awakening beings. Now there's different ways that we develop trust or feel our faith. And the most common and preliminary is a quality of blind faith. And not blind in a bad way, but rather we're just going through the day and in some way we encounter something that inspires us. And it might be a friend says something, it's just exactly the right thing and it gets to us, or a poem, or something we read, or a talk, or whatever. And it touches that place in us that goes, yes, that's possible. In some way, this, uh, this message that comes through allows us to intuit the big picture, the possibility of freedom. Faith gets deeper in a way that's called verified faith, and that's as we pay attention. What happens? We start connecting with, yes, this is how it is. It's true that when I sit and fear comes up and I stay with it, a quality of compassion or spaciousness becomes available, and then we begin to trust. Yes, it's true that when I'm with my child, and I put aside all my wanting and fearing and just make the effort to be present, there's a quality of intimacy that I cherish. It's true. So verified faith is we start actually doing this stuff. 
we start learning to become still and to pay attention. And lo and behold, it's no longer a message given in a Dharma talk or in a book or anywhere else. What we experience for ourselves is the sense of awakening heart-mind. The deepest kind of faith the Buddha talked about, unshakable faith, is when this verified faith has become so deep in us. We've had so many moments of realizing we're not a small self struggling against life. We are life. We're awakening Buddha nature. And that sense of who we are is so deeply in our being that when intense weather comes along, it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't shake that basic sense of who we are. Unshakable faith. Some years ago, probably about eight or ten years ago, a number of the Western Dharma teachers were going to India to visit Deepama. And Deepama, uh, from North India, a woman was a elderly Buddhist teacher and uh, known for her enormous heart, very, very loving. And she'd lead meditations in almost like a gymnasium, a cavernous room with hundreds and hundreds of students because they attract big crowds over there. And people would sit and meditate and she'd just kind of walk around. And whenever she saw somebody having a hard time, which was a lot, (laughs) she'd go over to them and she'd gently put her hand on their shoulder and whisper, it's okay, it's okay. Now, when I first heard this story about Deepama and her heart and her way of being with people, it was one of my first retreats. And so, since nobody was wandering around the retreat hall putting their hands on my shoulder, I would just, whenever I hit rough weather, I would just imagine this hand on my shoulder whispering, it's okay. And it's almost like that message, it's okay, is the substance of faith. It's this message that we can let go into life, that even though it's not easy or comfortable, we can trust that this too will wake us up. It's okay. So let's just do a few moments reflecting on this, if you will. Sitting up. It said that this mindfulness practice of letting go into this too is like learning to swim. That at first we fear that the water won't hold us up. That in some way we'll sink or drown in what's happening. And gradually as we rest in the water, we find that life does hold us up. So in this very simple meditation, we practice belonging to the moment. Notice what is true in your experience right now by relaxing through the body and then listening. Let go some of where there's tension.
sense if there's anything calling for attention, anything predominant, any emotion, sensations, whatever the waves of experience, letting go into what's arising. Ria Khan writes, to find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. Can you entrust yourself to the waves of this moment? Belong fully to this moment. If experience arises that you sense the tendency to pull away from, to simply notice that. And if you can, to soften into what's there. The more difficult the wave, the more deep the faith that arises when we let go into it. When the mind drifts, to simply realize that and then sense what's true this moment. Entrust yourself to that experience. Again and again we practice having this faith to open to the moment. As we begin to entrust ourselves to the waves, we find this deepening of trusting how it all is. And that naturally, that confidence, naturally encourages us to make a greater effort. And I don't mean by effort to strive, but rather to become even more wholehearted in our way of moving through life. 
And we know this. We know this to be true at work or in relationships, that when we begin to have confidence to trust what's happening, we put ourselves more wholeheartedly into that. Any effort we make creates energy, and waking up takes energy. So the Buddha, in in describing these faculties, described it that first we touch into this faith in how it all is, and that gives us the confidence to make an effort, to get even more wholehearted, to be even more present, more open, more here. Now, the second faculty, this faculty of wise effort, is probably one of the most sticky or challenging ones that emerges because we're always making an effort about something in our lives. And yet, as we know, a huge percentage of those efforts are driven by fear, I'm not good enough, something's going to go wrong. So how do you go from that modus operandi to making an effort in spiritual practice that's wise, that's not striving, rather that's the effort just to be present. It's not so easy. In fact, for most of us, there's an ongoing process of being mindful of the kind of effort we're making in spiritual practice. Whether for some people they find that the effort in in creating a regular sitting practice or attending retreats, they find the effort's got a quality of I've got to improve myself, I'm not good enough. Our others find that the effort's more try real hard and then I failed and then resign and then lay back and call it relaxed but be indulgent. You know, we swing back and forth. So there's a real value to bringing mindfulness to the quality of effort that we extend. I know a lot about unwise effort because I've spent a lot of time in spiritual practice where I didn't realize it, but I was caught up in an awful lot of striving. My first couple of years, um, I had this idea that when I first got involved with spiritual practice, I moved into an ashram, and I kind of had this notion that it would take about eight or nine years of really good effort to become enlightened. This was innocent, it wasn't arrogant. That's just kind of what I thought. So I worked really hard, and you know, if we were supposed to get up at 3.30, I got up at 3, and I I overdid things. And um, the idea was that I kept thinking, I'd, you know, I'd do all this yoga and meditation, I'd get high and feel blissed out and so on, but then what would inevitably happen is that some hours or some days later, I'd kind of crash and find myself really caught in my normal neurotic shtick. And that was disappointing, because here I thought I had just accomplished something, and I thought, okay, I'm on this level, now I'll go to this level, but instead I dropped back down into all sorts of self-judgment and, you know, blaming and all sorts of normal stuff. So I I found that periodically I'd, I'd go and check in with, I'd find a teacher that I thought was a good teacher and say, well, I've been working real hard, how am I doing, you know? Every single time, different language, I would get this kind of response of, relax, where do you think you're going, <laughs> you know? What's there to do? I began to realize that I was caught in this idea that I was supposed to make myself different. 
one of the teachers I went to, when I asked him, well, how can I improve, how can I get better, put me on a 40-day zucchini fast. (laughs) I found out later that 40 days on zucchini is supposed to relax your nervous system, so... (laughs) But you get the theme that you can go into this stuff and, and and be idealistic and really strive, and all it does is reinforce a sense Something's wrong with me. I'm not good enough and I need to get better. I was teaching um, the New Year's retreat up at IMS uh, this a few, some months ago, and one of the participants was a carpenter. And he was trying really hard, and at one point he created this fixture, this hanger around his neck, and, and it had at his chest this little box with a bubble in it, and what he, he was using it to make sure he was sitting up straight. <laughs> so he would look down and see if the bubble was in the middle, and that would tell him he was sitting up straight. <laughs> so we had a talk about wise effort, and mostly it was, you know, at the end it was quite entertaining to a lot of people, but just to see this guy checking his bubble, you know. <laughs> Now, it's natural that our spiritual effort is mixed with striving and with fear. That's just a given. So it's about being mindful of that and then coming back to remember, what's this about anyway? If we want to be fully here, then it means relaxing back to this moment, relaxing back into who we are not making a fist and gritting our teeth and working even harder. So we watch our intention. In making a wise effort, we just watch our intention. We can do it in our conversations with each other when we find that there's some stickiness going on to just check in, okay, so what is it I'm trying to accomplish? What's the outcome I'm going for? One of the valuable ways of exploring intent is to come right back to some basic question of what's asking for attention? What's really asking for attention right now? I read a um, book recently by Reb Anderson, who's a, a Zen teacher on the West Coast, and he describes his way of coming back into the moment He'll feel something strongly, some, or he'll have a thought, or some, something will come up, and he'll say, what is this experience asking of me? What is this experience asking of me? Now, I'd like you just to check that out for a moment, just to sit and take a few full breaths, and notice what's going on in your body, Notice what's going on in your heart and inquire, what is this moment's experience asking of me? What is this life asking of me?
if we're to make an effort in spiritual life. For it to free us, it needs come from our deepest heart's aspiration. What is this moment asking? We inquire and then simply listen. Sometimes what the response will be is unconditional friendliness. Sometimes this moment's asking for just a simple, deep attention. Sometimes it's asking for some nourishment. Always some quality of attentiveness because the light and warmth of our attention continuously relaxes us back to our original nature. What is this moment asking from me? So as we cultivate this spiritual faculty of wise effort, I offer this to you as just one skillful means to keep reconnecting to that deep place that effort can come out of. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, describes his early days in practice and all, all the you know foibles and confusion and so on, and how his teacher would say, again and again, a thousand times, be simple and easy. And that 25 years later, it was probably one of the jewels that most deeply inspired his practice. That we make this effort to be present, and yet we make it in a way, be simple and easy, unencumbered. So there's faith, in this life, entrusting ourselves to the moment, and then the effort to really be here for this moment. The third faculty that the Buddha described is mindfulness. We make the effort to be here, and then mindfulness, the recognition of what's true, what's really happening. This mindfulness is really the core, the primary tool of awakening that we teach in Vipassana meditation how to bring a fullness of heart and mind. It's called mindfulness. It could as well be called mind-heartfulness or heart-mindfulness. The word in many Asian scripts is the same for heart and mind. We suffer when our awareness is contracted. Sometimes, as I mentioned, it's not anguish. It's just the suffering of being preoccupied. We suffer because when our awareness is not full and whole, we're in some way reactive, in some way operating off of fearing and wanting. There's no way to be intimate with this moment or with each other or with any part of our lives if there's not a fullness of attention, mindfulness. Rather, what happens is we're operating off of 
a fragment. We're reacting to a fragment, and we're not attuned. So I found this recently. This is an example of um, what happens without mindfulness. Donald MacDonald from the Isle of Skye, that's in Scotland, went to study at an English university and was living in the hall of residence with all the other students there. After he'd been there a month, his mother came to visit him, no doubt carrying reinforcements of taddies, salt herring, oatmeal, and whiskey. How do you find the English students, Donald, she asked. Mother, he replied, they're such terrible, noisy people. The one on that side keeps banging his head on the wall and won't stop. The one on the other side screams and screams all night. Oh, Donald, how do you manage to put up with these awful, noisy English neighbors? Mother, I do nothing. I just ignore them. I just stay here quietly, playing my bagpipes. (laughs) We get cut off when any part of our mind's cut off. It's not just that we're not in the fullness of awareness, we are not able to tune in to what's right in front of us. So there's two qualities of mindfulness that we cultivate, two qualities that really bring to fullness the nature of mind. And one is recognition, that we know what's happening. It's been described as the cognizant nature of mind. It's that place, space, quality of awareness that's knowing right now, that's hearing sounds and registering them, that's seeing color and form, that's registering emotions or sensations. It's just that knowing. The second quality of mindfulness is non-clinging, that what is realized is not clung to. Experiences arise, they're registered, but they're not clung to. It's as if we're this great sky of awareness that allows clouds and celestial bodies to come and to move through and to go, and yet the sky is unstained, unreactive, clear, continuously present not holding to what arises. This non-clinging is really the core of our training because our conditioning is to constantly try to manipulate what arises. Rather than resting in this great sky of mindfulness, we contract and argue with what comes up. We fight it, we resist it, we try to hold on to it. We add on to it, to Really be open and mindful means not to add on a sense of I or my. This experience doesn't belong to me, isn't because of me, isn't going to serve me. Buddha Dasa called this eyeing and mying, that we don't move and proliferate from an experience into all these concepts that own it and try to make things different. So mindfulness, this open awareness that knows what's true and neither clings nor resists to what's experienced. It's also called bare attention. 
some of you might know one of my kind of models of mindfulness is described by a Zen nun from the 1500s who says that I meet life with my whole body. Now, whole body means physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Moving through life with this mindfulness, wakefulness, in all levels of our being. So we take some moments again just to practice this bare attention, if you will. Become sitting. As the Buddha describes it, we cultivate this faith. We entrust ourselves to this moment's experience. We make this wise effort to really be here. And then with mindfulness, simply open to what's happening, noticing what it's like and letting it be. Not clinging, not resisting. as a way of connecting fully, mindfully with experience, you might sense the meaning of meeting life with your whole body. What's it like this moment to not resist, to not cling, to wakefully experience the breath, and sounds and sensations this moment and this moment What many of us find when our intention is to open mindfully is that we touch in a bit and then very quickly drift. How many of you notice that? Can I see the hands? Yeah, me too. So that brings us to the fourth spiritual faculty, and that is concentration. Concentration is maintaining that mindfulness in a moment-to-moment way with some continuity, keeping the focus, keeping a steadiness of mind. A metaphor that helps me is, is that of just simply rubbing two sticks together to create heat and knowing that you just can't start and stop if you really want to create a fire, which is the reason that we practice and we give ourselves some time 
no problem with the mind drifts. Our practice is to keep coming back and coming back until it becomes part of our capacity, our habit, to remember we've gotten lost. Oh, drifting, come back. Again and again, so that we begin to have a steadiness of being here. It's a muscle that we build. Anyone can learn to concentrate, but it really does take practice. It's one of those things where our conditioning is to be so all over the place that it becomes a a precious, precious capacity to start having this place in our awareness that goes, oh yeah, come back, until it becomes more familiar, more at home to be here than to be off in our preoccupied mind. Now this is St. Francis de Sales. Bring yourself back to the point, in this case the breath, quite gently. And even if you do nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back a thousand times, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. So what we find in our mindfulness training is that a real fair amount of our time we're patiently honoring this practice of concentration, of identifying a place to come back to, which for many of us is the breath, and of again and again noticing when we've drifted and finding this pathway into the present moment by coming back to the breath. And during the day, when we get lost, perhaps using the whole body. I find during sittings I go back and forth between using the breath as an anchor or my whole body, or sometimes sounds. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just the habit of letting go of conceptual mind and re-entering the vividness and the immediacy of the present moment. So we continue again, and purposely tonight I'm having you go in and out of coming back. Let this next sitting be again a coming back. See if you can reestablish with less and less lag time that quality of mindfulness, fullness of attention. Scan through the body and let there be an embodied awareness, meeting life with your full attention, being aware in the middle of sensations of the breath. And we'll take some moments to deepen the attention on the breath, just the breath. As you breathe in, sense the experience of receiving. Soften the belly and just relax and let the breath touch you on a cellular level. This is the true biology of breathing. We breathe in prana, life. So let this meditation on the inhale be with an exquisite awareness of receiving. The breath is felt. 
feeling the exact sensations of the breath, softening, receiving. With the out-breath, letting go. Relaxing, dissolving outward. You might follow the breath at the nose and sense that your whole body and awareness can follow the breath out and mingle with the space around you. Letting go, letting go of holdings, letting go of tightness, letting go of the breath, relaxing outward, and then with the in-breath, just opening to receive. So with each part of the breath, with the in-breath opening, with the out-breath opening more, dissolving outward, an embodied awareness of the breath, the mind moves away into thought form, to notice that and gently return to the point, to the receiving of the in-breath, to the letting go, dissolving outward of the out-breath, taking refuge in this place of presence, Noticing what it's like. Just this breath. Coming back again and again with the fullness of attention.
noticing where your attention is. And with a friendly, kind awareness, coming to rest again and again in the breath. Concentration both makes mindfulness possible and deepens mindfulness. Now, these four faculties lead to the fifth. The Buddha was teaching a pathway with attention to waking up. The fifth of the faculties is bodhicitta, the awakened mind, heart, wisdom, or the heart of perfect wisdom. There's many ways of saying it. The fifth of these faculties is what we realize when we pay attention. What happens when we bring the fullness of our attention to any given moment? What do we see? The fifth of the faculties is several decades of Dharma talks unto itself. So I'd be short shrifting you if I just went through it mechanically. So what I've decided to do is have this fifth faculty, the realization of bodhicitta, the wisdom that we discover, be the subject of next week's Dharma talk. So (laughs) I have to come back for continuing (laughs) one on this particular one. But just to say quite briefly that this pathway that the Buddha is describing takes us only into more deeply who we are. That if there's any teaching the Buddha gave again and again, it was to be a lamp unto thyself, to not look outside yourself for where the truth is. So I'd just like to encourage you this week to, as you practice, to practice again this resting and belonging in the moment. Let the concentration deepen some and see what's true in your own experience. We'll close with a very short sitting again, if you will. To find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves.
May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings realize the natural wisdom and compassion of their nature. May all beings awaken and be free. May our practice and our moments together be of benefit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.